Welcome back to another spooky episode of Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. I'm your host, Chappie, and let's get started. All right, jumping right into our stories today. We've got an exciting um, couple stories from a pamphlet called Our Unceasing Spiritual Warfare, written by a missionary, Henry R. Pike. All right. So I'm going to skip around um, just for cohesiveness. Um, But there's quite a few really spooky stories in here, so can't wait to get into them. All right. Starting in one called A Night Visitor in the Doctor's Bedroom. This occurred in October 1959. I conducted a one-night service in a small town named Eider, Alabama. After the meeting, the minister invited me home to spend the night. The parsonage was an old house, once occupied by a local physician, who was known as a godless, wicked man. As it happened, I slept in the bedroom where his medical where the medical doctor had died years ago. The light of a full moon flooded into the room through the screens, covering two large windows. In the early morning hours, I was violently shaken out of my sleep. Something hideous stood by my bed. With ice-cold hands, or whatever they were, it seized my throat. I was being physically choked, sinking into the unconsciousness. I prayed, Lord Jesus, save me. Instantly, the dark entity vanished. I fell back into my bed. My neck ached with severe pain. During breakfast, I casually or cautiously questioned the pastor about the house, its former occupants, and so forth. He stared at me and said, Yeah, strange things happen in this house. Though not understood at the time, that was my first physical violent encounter with Satan and demons. Ooh, how spooky. All right, let's see. All right, the Australian Barbershop. About five years later, it was scorching summer morning in 1966. We had finished our first church in Gladstone, a coastal town in Queensland. Now we were working with the Australian outback town of Alice Springs, located near the upper middle of the nation. I purposely got up early in order to be the first at the barber shop. JL, the barber, who was the brother of a woman in our church, was opening the door as I drove up. We chatted about things in general when he worked on my hair. As he completed the haircut, I said, Joe, do you know the Lord Jesus as your personal savior? To my shock, an entirely different voice spoke through his mouth. His countenance became hideous. In a low, almost hissing tone, the reply came, No, never speak that name in this place. Horrified, I looked up as he stood glaring at me with a razor in his hand. Quickly, I paid JL and left the shop. Puzzled, I drove home asking, Was that really a demon speaking to me? Indeed, a demon had spoken through the mouth of that Aussie barber. That was my second real encounter with the forces of darkness. All right. This one's called Another Visitor at Night. 
We were happy in our work in Alice Springs. People were slowly being saved, and the nucleus of converts were coming together by the grace of God. The area was semi-desert, sweltering hot in the summer, and frequently bitter cold in the winter. Pounding sandstorms covered everything with red dust was a feature we will never forget. It was the year since the barber trauma. I changed barbers and rarely gave it a thought. Yet what I saw in those movies infrequently troubled me. Shortly, another visitor came to my bedroom, this time in Australia, not Eider, Alabama, in far-off America. During the unbearable summer night heat, we would soak a sheet, wiring it down, or wring it out, spread it over us at night in order to get some relief. Otherwise, sleep was impossible. Air conditioners did not exist in that part of Australia for the common man. It was sometime shortly after 5 a.m. as I looked at the clock when then went back to sleep. The first rays of dawn were rising. Suddenly, my sh- my throat was gripped by freezing cold hands. Looking up, there stood the most horrible figure I have ever seen. It towered over my side of the bed and was strangling me, growling like a dog. It reflected a horrible semblance and tightened its grip around my throat. The doctor's bedroom experience flashed before me. Choking, barely able to breathe, I prayed, Lord Jesus, save me. Instantly, the awful entity vanished. My wife was unaware of the battle. Waking her, she helped me rise up in bed. For days, I could not move my head without piercing sharp pains. Carefully, I considered all the possibilities and ruled out a nightmare, bad dream, sleeping crooked, and so forth. The only option was something from an evil spiritual world was trying to kill me. I eventually considered my mind was going. The similarity between the experience in the doctor's bedroom and the one in Alice Springs, Australia, could not be a coincidence. Yet there was a bright spot. Our first furlough was near. Amid the cheerful thoughts of seeing parents, families, churches, friends, these terrible things temporarily faded from conscious thought. I convinced myself they would not reoccur. Again, I was wrong. Several years after the above and now halfway around the world, I sat in a large office building in Johannesburg, South Africa. We were waiting for a nurse who wanted help with a problem. Several other Christians were present. In walked H.V., about 27 years of age. She took a seat in front of my chair. The pastor called on me to pray. I barely said, Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I... Suddenly, H. bellowed out a piercing scream, levitated up from her chair into the air, catapulted over its back, and crashed onto the floor, kicking and screaming. The The chair fell violently on top of her as though some invisible power threw it. Instantly, the room filled with evil. The elderly Christian pastor kneeling on my right commanded, Go out of her in the name of the Son of God. And that was it. The two women present rushed and helped H onto a couch. She was visibly attacked. Her white uniform twisted and her hair disheveled. She stammered, What happened? After a pause, she exclaimed, God be praised, I am free, and she burst into tears of thanks to God. Stunned, my previous counters with evil instantly flooded my mind. 
Again, I had clashed with demon spirits. This time it was not dark apparitions or hissing voices, but a literal physical attack on one of their captives as they were leaving her body. This woman, young woman dogmatically affirmed she had been saved, but went into awful sin um, with some of the hospital medical staff. The events were my introduction into the Christian spiritual warfare. All right, continuing on. This section is called Violence Sometimes Accompanies Spiritual Warfare. Some troubled by demons react violently when confronted with the person or work of Christ, the Holy Spirit, or prayer. This is not the individuals reacting, but the powers of darkness living in their bodies. Law enforcement officers continually deal with possessed people, growling and fighting with super strength against necessary restraint. Others possessed vomit a pink, thick fluid, swoon, curse, cough wildly, urinate, bash their heads, claw their faces, groan, and pretend sickness. One man sprawled on the floor of a Baptist church, pounded his face into the wooden floor until the blood streamed down. Super strength contortions may occur in the physical body. A frail elderly grandmother, known thrown into a trance by evil spirits, lifted a full-size grand piano from the floor with one foot. A grand or a college student in Perth, Australia, pushed a piano through a sliding glass door and it rolled into a nearby swimming pool. In counseling, a former Baptist preacher, he sprang up from the front pew and crash landed over my chest and sent me sprawling to the floor. Speaking in the African language, which he did not know, I had commanded, or that's what the preacher was doing. I commanded that if demons were in him, they must tell me who in, who is Lord of all. With the things, with this, things went crazy. He was delivered after two, a two-hour battle in which two other pastors took part. Why some are de- delivered instantly and others are not is due to the deep, unconfessed sin in their lives. Jesus Christ is supreme Lord of all. Do-do-do. Uh, gets into some religious stuff. A petite university student requested counseling and help. At the first prayer, she levitated up from the, her chair, went flying through the air, hitting the, and sliding down the wall to the carpet. In a few seconds, she clawed the thick carpet to matting. As four adults knelt over her, one of them a medical doctor, alarmed as she continued to smash her head on the floor. A voice growled fiercely from her throat. I am Richard. This was her brother's name. He was a Satanist who lived in Chicago. He had put a curse on her for attending Christian school. Sin harbored in her life had given place to the devil's curse, sent by evil spirits from her brother living far away. And she was delivered. R.D., using initials to protect persons, was a professional opera singer in Johannesburg, South Africa. While on the edge of being saved, she returned to her top floor apartment in Hillborough late one evening after hearing the claims of Christ on her life. Laying back 
laying back on her head for a night's sleep. Suddenly, some 25 oil paintings attached to the concrete walls were all simultaneously torn from their sockets and slammed to the floor. Her favorite cat floated through the air over her head and out the window and dropped to its death below. Large pieces of furniture moved and levitated through the air. She fled to our house and begged for help. It was later discovered that her father, who came from England, was a devil worshiper from four generations past. R.D. was finally saved. After prolonged prayer in the premises, she reported that all occult activity ceased in her apartment. G.F., a South African Jewish businesswoman, sat in my study on a Sunday afternoon in 1976. She fell into a trance as we began to pray. Out of her mouth oozed a pink foam. She rapidly spoke in a garbled, unknown tongues. I commanded whatever was in her to stop the unknown tongue and identify itself. Out came a fierce commanding voice. My name is Satan. This is my house, and I will not leave. Though she claimed to know God, we could not help her. Some weeks later, I phoned her best friend in Durban. This woman, a Christian, informed me that her Jewish friend was deeply involved in the drug trafficking through her business. From this, we knew that she lied during our counseling when she asked to confess all her sins before praying. It was reported she committed suicide a few months later. Pastor P.T. Pastor P.T. phoned early one afternoon from his home near Johannesburg. A nurse came to him for counseling. Once in the pastor's study, she sat with her head down, staring wide-eyed at the floor. This fine South African minister could not budge her. When I arrived in the study, the nurse refused to look up at me. I got down on the floor and pulled myself under her bent-down head. After a long season of prayer, she became, she became like a stone image. Suddenly, from my position on the floor, I noticed a series of scars from her wrist down on her elbow. This signaled me that there was some kind of blood pact with Satan. I asked, when did you make a pact with the devil? Grimacing, she mumbled some incoherent words. Finally, she leaned forward. Er, finally, we learned the following. A voice had directed her to go to her father's grave and open a Bible at John 14. The father successfully practiced black magic most of his life. The voice told her to slash her wrists in orderly lines down to her elbow and then let it bleed on this part of scripture. From that time on, she was in satanic bondage. She pr- pressed both hands over her ears as I quoted scripture. Every form of evil hates the word of God. After an hour of accomplishing nothing, the, pa- the pastor ordered her to leave. She stood, spun on her heels in military disciplined fashion, and stormed defiantly from the study. Not all cases of demonic activity are violent. Some evil spirits like quiet, trying not to be detected. Stronger spirits, when seeing the game is up, may rage, howl, bark like dogs, Make noises like cats, whine, cry, spit, hiss, curse, and so on. Some speaking through the mouths of their prisoners, using their names and titles as death, insomnia, lying, fornication, adultery, sodomy, sleep, prayer, 
liberalism, church, Bible, smoke, fire, theology, no name, debate, and hundreds of others. A South African mother fell back onto the leather couch in the pastor's study at Bethany Baptist Church outside of Pretoria. As we started to pray, one of the demons boasted through her mouth that he had lived hundreds of years before in an American Indian named Big Chief Blue Beast. He defiantly used this name. In the battle that followed, some 50 demons hissed their names from their her snarling lips. She was a physical wreck, sprawled out over the couch, foaming from the mouth, grinding her teeth. Her legs stiffened like rods of iron as she shook violently under the control of evil spirits. She was gloriously delivered and broke out into loud praises for the Savior. Everyone present joined in giving glory to God. I met her two years later in Durban, in the south coast of that country. She still thanked the Lord for his mercy in her life. When possessed people die, demons leave their body and seek entrance into a family member that was extremely close to them. This is especially so if they share their sins or the deceased person had previously laid hands on them and transferred the demonism or bequeathed to them satanically cursed objects such as charms, pendulums, or occult books, etc. From an unconscious teen sprawled on a church pew in Cape Town, South Africa, the name rock music hissed out of his mouth. He was deeply involved in the worst so-called rock music. Once the final authority of God's word is laid upon them, they try many devices. Some demons can be commanded to confess if they believe in Christ's deity. They will sometimes answer via the captive's mouth. Stronger demons can often scream and curse. Others are silent to avoid exorcism, while weaker ones beg not to hear about the precious blood of Christ and his victory over Satan. Be cautious of dealing with demons that talk. They lie about who they are and their purpose. All evil spirits like their master, the devil. <laughs> Sorry, having to skip through some of the more religious stuff. All right, 10 Extraordinary Cases of Demonic Activity. Apart from those mentioned above, the following is a review of other forms of demonic bondage. These are real-life cases that physically happen to human beings just like us. Only brief details are given due to the nature of these shocking realities. Too much talk about this is not healthy. Not enough talk is deadly. Proper balance from the wisdom of the Holy Spirit is needed. Some tried to prove these things are not true. Several years ago, the author of this prayer of this paper went to a medical specialist for a nerve test on his right arm. He was an elderly and very kind Presbyterian who said he knew Christ as Savior. Knowing I had spent much of my life in a foreign mission field, he inquired, Do you believe in Satan and demons? I responded in the affirmative, and he replied, Can you prove this? I told him of possessed persons who could speak languages they had never learned. He replied, medical science and psychiatry cannot explain that, which, we, which he was trying to do. 
He requested a list of verses where Jesus clashed with Satan and devils. This was done, but no response was ever received. The information in this booklet is not given to send Christians across the city on Saturday nights to witch hunt for evil spirits. This demonstrates these things are real. Hell is horrible. Sin is sure. Sin damns. And Jesus along saves and delivers. It is wicked to play down needed and correct medical attention in the name of divine healing, as the religious radicals do on national TV. Da-da-da. All right. Here's the stories. <sighs> Got lost in the sauce there for a minute. <laughs> Number one. Born in Scotland, I met uh, initials BS through his daughter and wife who were true believers. He was a distraught man. As a young boy, his parents lived for years beside a witch. She took special interest in B. She had bequeathed or willed to him her old friend, grandfather clock. B told how it would chime at strangest hours of the night, and at midnight it goes crazy. Terrible odors like the smell of burning acid and frequently came into his bedroom as the clock chimed. His wife said that the witch had died at the midnight hour. He asked what I should, what to do. I said, you must repent of your sins and then willingly take the clock, renounce it out of your life, and burn it in the name of Jesus. It was obvious he was full of resentment. Standing in the open field in front of B's house under a streetlight, I saw him pour petrol on the wooden clock and ignite it from a distance. It would not burn. Retrieving a sledgehammer from the garage, he pounded it to pieces. When he finished, it continued to strike several gongs afterwards. B.S. was not delivered from the curse he was under because of unconfessed sin in his life. Sin must be renounced and repented by all of us. Again, this was written by a missionary, so <laughs> it's kind of obvious, the set and tone. All right, number two. A professional artist who lives some few miles outside of Johannesburg phoned and asked me to come and help her family. The story, following story emerged. Her art studio was in a separate room adjoining the main house structure. At night, they would hear various noises in the studio. Upon investigation, the furniture would be rearranged, doors and windows open, lights on, and so forth. Questioning both her and her husband in great detail regarding their faith in Christ, I was convinced that both were saved people. After an hour of talking, we prayed and asked God's wisdom to discern the cause, and I returned home. First thing the next day, she called to inform me that upon entering the studio that morning, something had painted a full portrait upon a clean canvas. It was a heinous configuration. I struggled with the pro this problem for weeks. Upon a subsequent visit, I inquired about their African domestic maid. It came out that this woman was a witch, and she practiced black magic. Her room was located in the back of the house. Furthermore, the, off the artist fired her for stealing. In raging anger, the witch swore a curse upon the premises as she stormed out. After this, demonic activity commenced in the studio and the house. Chaos broke out as the little daughter screamed in terror each night and the dog howled for hours. 
While praying our way around the swimming pool one Saturday, we noticed a fresh layer of earth heaped up in a small mound at the corner of the fence. Miss V took a shovel and dug. He turned up, or Mr. V took a shovel and dug. He turned up a magic charm made of dried animal skins and the kind used by African witch doctors who are in league with the devil. The demon-possessed maid had buried it there to keep the house under her spell. With the entire family gathered around, it was burned in a fire in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They all prayed and asked God to bless their home with his love, and the curse was broken. <sighs> Heavy stuff. Number three. While on furlough in late 1976, I was preaching in Florida. A local sheriff's wife came to me in tears begging for help. Her house was haunted, so she said. Late at night, both lights and water went on and off. Pounding footsteps were heard and vibrated over the entire house. Cabinet doors opened of their own accord, and the canned goods flew out into the kitchen floor. Upon entering the house, I noticed a large zodiac attached to the side of the door. The sheriff was rude, unhelpful, and adamantly refused to remove the demonic zodiac emblem. In tones of scorn, he expressed his contempt for the church and all the ministers. I immediately left and was later learned that his wife had left him um, as she could not retain her sanity living in this shocking demonic activity. Sin in the life of the sheriff gave Satan the grounds he needed to do his dirty work. Eh. That one's a weird one. I don't know. Let's move on. Number four. During the furlough mentioned above, we lived in Greenville, South Carolina. A pastor tried, or a pastor friend phoned and asked if I would go with him on a Sunday afternoon to pray over a certain house located in, on Augusta Road. He told me that a family in his church lived there. The night before, the husband's mother was sleeping in the basement on a cot. Something shook her awake in the middle of the night. Suddenly, she was slapped out of the cot onto the floor. Other occult phenomena had also been occurring in the place. Upon arriving at the scene, we went next door and inquired of the neighbors, who were elderly Christians, about the history of the house. We were told that some years previous, two prostitutes had been murdered in the upper level of the house and their bodies thrown over the balcony to the concrete porch below. We read and selected portions of God's word out loud through the entire place, and in the name of Christ took back all the grounds from the devils of prostitution had in that house. Right. Again, some of this you'll have to take with a grain of salt, as it was written by a pastor or a missionary. All right, number five. Let me check the time. All right, let's take a short break and get right back at it after this. All right, right back into number five. A pastor called and requested that I come speak to his people about the occult. Six nights were set aside for this meeting. No public advertising were was done. Only the members and the friends of the church were urged to attend. After the second service, something tried to assault the pastor's wife at night while her husband was out on an emergency call. 
A dark figure standing in fr- at the foot of her bed could be seen in the faint nightlight burning from the bathroom. It slowly pulled the covers from her and levitated into the air over her body as incubus demons do. Frozen with terror, this little woman prayed, Son of God, save me. Instantly, it vanished as the bedroom door slammed shut with a roar. The pastor staggered into my motel room early the following morning and related the story. Gradually, the cause of this threatened... Gradually... The cause for this threatened incubus attack came into focus. It was discovered that the previous pastor was having an adulterous affair with his secretary. This had been going on for some two years. He fled the church before he could be exposed and dealt with. A search was made of the church study as well as the bedrooms and living room of the parsonage. Some of the most unspeakable items were found, including instruments used by sadists and sex maniacs amid their orgies as well as pornographic magazines. These items were burned in fire. Prayer was made over the entire property and all the grounds reclaimed by the power of Jesus' precious blood. The place occupied by evil spirits through adultery of the previous minister and his secretary was taken away. The devil could not attack the minister's wife on these grounds, for they no longer existed. Shortly thereafter, a deacon rose up against the pastor, He became so fierce in opposition that the pastor left the church. Such attacks are instigated by Satan and demons. They must be dealt with from scripture, renouncing all known sin, covering all things with prayer. All right. Number seven, R.W. R.W. was a British devil worshiper that lived in Germanston, South Africa. On Easter Sunday morning in 1982, his neighbor invited him to come and hear me preach at Brackenhurst Baptist Church. He later told me, or told how he gladly accepted the invitation with the intention of sitting in the service and calling up demons to disrupt the meeting. I spoke of the resurrection of Christ and his absolute authority over powers of darkness. As the congregation sang the closing hymn, R.W. began to shake violently knocking metal chairs onto the concrete floor. A faithful believer sitting nearby, not knowing what was happening, and escorted him into the church kitchen area. Suddenly, a terrible commotion roared from the kitchen. I gave the final part of the meeting to another man and went hurriedly to the kitchen. As I entered the room, R.W. was suddenly thrown to the floor with plastic plates, cups, saucers, flying. D.S., the South African brother, knew instantly what was going on. He fell on his knees, and we both went into prayer. In a few minutes, R.W. relaxed, slowly raised his head from the tile floor. In a beautiful British accent, he said, Jesus Christ is stronger than Satan. I now trust him. That night, he brought a large bag full of demonic objects and burned them in front of the church building as all gathered around and prayed. Later, R.W. returned to England to share the gospel with his own people. His mother had been a witch all her life and passed on her gifts to her son. By laying her hands on his head and dedicating him to the Force, meaning Satan, children's TV programs speak of the Force. I heard a small boy say his friend to his friend in the hallway, The Force be with you. This was an innocent voice of dark ignorance speaking. Hmm... Number eight, 
While preaching in Stark, Florida, a nurse came to the pastor and his wife for help. She became overly friendly with the handsome male patient. Upon his release from the hospital, they met in a motel room. As they embraced and shared their first adulterous kiss, a demon in the man moved into the nurse. The evil spirit confessed this during counseling. He spoke through her mouth. After a fierce battle, this demon of lust and adultery was exercised. She collapsed to the floor as he departed her body. Number nine. A mechanic in Greenville, South Carolina, stopped me as I was leaving his garage. He begged me for help with his eight-year-old son. The child had been trying to stab his mother in the back with a large kitchen knife. Taking another trusted man, we entered the mechanic's house. He related how small, a small wooden car sitting on the shelf in his son's bedroom had driven over, had driven over the living room late one night with both headlights flashing. It was constructed totally of wood with no battery system. I inquired if there had been any horrible crimes or deeds committed in that house to his knowledge. To my shock, he pointed to the floor in front of my chair and said, Yes, Mr. Pike, a businessman who lived here before us, murdered his partner on that very spot. The following week, I learned that the mechanic's wife was living in adultery with another man. The sin committed by the mother and the murder of the business partner gave grounds to the appalling actions of demons in that house. As I had sat on the floor and tried to pray with the child, he spat in my face several dozen times. The adulterous mother refused to come into the room. Nothing was accomplished. With some deliverance, it's instant others take long and drawn out. As children especially that have been molested carry awful scars, many of them real psychological scars in the human mind, have nothing to do with Satan and demonism. All right, number 10. I taught CC in Bible school for several years. From our first meeting, I detected a shyness or fear within her friendly personality. Her father told me earlier while I was preaching at his church in Sydney, Australia, that my daughter has strange problems. After some five months in Bible school, she became she came for help, being tormented with dreams of rape and sexual assault. Her plans were laid to commit suicide and make it appear as an accident, as to not embarrass her lovely family. Then out came the rest of the story. She and her sister had been hypnotized by a medical missionary from Indonesia and raped. At the time this happened, both girls were living in terrible secret sins. During the ordeal, Cece shared how some, how something freezing cold entered her helpless body. Later, it spoke to her to never mention the rape or it would destroy her. After numerous sessions, she was led into a place of fresh hope in Christ and renewed trust in God's love for her. In our last prayer time, she convulsed fiercely as something went out of her. C was freed from the bondage of evil spirits that claimed her physical body during the helplessness of rape. I had no further contact with her sister, but learned that she tried to kill herself several times. All right. So I think that's all I'm going to read from this missionary. Again, that was from Our Unceasing Spiritual Warfare by Henry R. Pike. All right, another story told from the pulpit by a pastor and missionary. Um, 
it was when he was very young and his father was also a missionary and evangelist. Uh, they were asked to go speak to this young boy who's around college age. I don't know if you consider that young, but I digress. <sighs> they went there and he was heavily depressed, heavily into darkness and the occult and stuff like that. Um, his family was the one that asked them to go speak to him. So while they were there and they were witnessing to him uh, for Christianity, um, they said another voice took over. And he started laughing right in the guy's face and saying all kinds of um, blasphemes and starting cursing right in the older pastor's face. And then he looks at his son, who's the younger pastor, who's telling this story, and he says, pray. So immediately the younger pastor starts praying to God to deliver them from the situation and the older pastor says, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to Jason. And he starts talking to the man again, um, basically telling the spirit he is not here to talk to him. He's talk here to talk to the actual person in whose body he had taken over. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think. Throughout time, you know, growing up in Christianity, they would always just break out these stories. <laughs> and as a young kid, you know, you're sitting there terrified, like, what did I just hear? But I do remember one story that actually I liked. And it was one over in Africa where um, one of the village people was supposedly possessed by a spirit. And she was like, you know, acting the fool and all that until the missionary came in and he was talking about auras and how everybody gives off an aura because whenever he walked in, she shielded her eyes and said, the light, it's too bright. It's too bright. And that was before they had even said anything, you know. So they went to work on her, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. I've talked to pastors before um, on this subject, and like some believe that uh, this stuff doesn't happen nowadays. But I mean, as recent as the 80s and sooner, some of these stories are. So evidently it happens sometimes, but now they're fewer and far between. But, yeah, I don't know what to make of it. I just know, um, just from hearing stories and, like, making it common lore, uh, it tends to be attracted by negativity, by anger, by depression, by all these things culminated together. Um, that's why we tell you, you know, you should talk nice to yourself. You should change your internal monologue so that it's not always negative towards yourself, stuff like that. Because um, the stuff feeds on negativity. Um, it's like a breeding ground for them. But that's just according to the lore. If you believe the common lore. Um, I do have other stories. Uh, they're not really mine specifically. They're just ones that pastors have told. 
um, you know, trying to pray the evil out of a church and all the windows bust open at the same time and stuff like that. Um, it's not something you would see happen nowadays, I don't believe. But I digress. You could. <laughs> um, if you are taking to the Bible version of things, it does say if you have a mustard seed of faith, um, that's all it takes to, you know, for God to listen when you call him. So if you believe that, you know, he can take care of whatever's bothering you or whatever's tormenting you, um, call out to Jesus, you know, might as well try. <laughs> not trying to convert anybody. I know I am not of faith anymore, but push comes to shove. I see something scary. I'm probably going to be like, dear God, or dear Jesus, and kind of put it in their hands because I don't know. <laughs> that's where, that's just automatically where I would go, but that's because that's how I was raised. Um,. All right, let's take a short break and then get right back into some more stories. All right, welcome back. This one I've read before on this series, um, but I feel like it's appropriate for this episode, so I'm going to read it again. It's called Eyes of the Devil. The police were called to a domestic violence report in poor inner-city of America, known for high amounts of crime, prostitution, human trafficking, and drug-related violence. Neighbors in a residential complex initially called, phoned in a call as they heard screaming and banging. This comes from Real Police Ghost Stories by Zachary Knowles. The police arrived on the scene and found seven people mostly from families who lived in the complex, out on the, gray, out on the grass praying silently. The officers heard the people mumbling under their breath as they thought they didn't want to disturb anybody. When the officers asked what they were doing, one answered, praying for our souls. This unsettled the officers and immediately set the tone for what was to come next. Heading into the apartment, they were directed to go to a room where a member of the family was apparently possessed. Skeptical and thinking this was probably a drug-related incident, they went to assess the situation. Reaching for the door, they realized they were, there were multiple voices inside the room. Though they were advised there was only one man, screaming at one, one language, screaming at one another in languages neither of the officers recognized. Sensing the situation was outside of their expertise, the lead officers called for backup and the EMTs for a potentially serious psychological incident. While waiting for backup to arrive, the officers questioned the family about the man. Apparently, he'd been acting oddly for weeks, becoming anxious and agitated over minuscule things, and progressively more haggard and pale as if he was ill. About half an hour before the police arrived, he started screaming he was going to eat his family and would be dragged back to hell where he'd been because he'd broken the, the agreement. Next, he started begging the Virgin Mary to save him, and then began foaming at the mouth and burning himself with holy candles. 
The family managed to stop him and move him to another room, but he'd become more violent to the point where they couldn't control him. A family member said they'd given up when he'd climbed up the walls onto the ceiling. As the family retold the story, the man began to scream so piercingly in unknown languages, the walls were shaking. All of the officers involved in the incident were highly experienced, long-time members of the force, but many of the officers were starting to become unglued. One officer even passed a rosary through his fingers to comfort himself, while the rest of the EMTs managed to keep a lid on their fears. When the EMTs and backup arrived, they headed upstairs with the officers to the man, man's room. They tried the door, but the man locked himself in, forcing the officers to break down the door. They discovered a room completely upturned, almost everything knocked over and covered in blo bloody foam from the man's mouth. There was one desk lamp still on and working, casting strange, casting shadows of strange shapes that seemed to transform when eyed. After the officers were sure no one else was in the room, the EMTs moved in to try and calm the man down. He was huddled in the corner of the room, hunched up like a squat, like an animal over a fresh kill. He was rambling under his breath with, to an invisible fi figure. One of the medics said his name and his head picked up, but in the way like a dog does, just a movement of the head and ears, the head and neck, with no self-consciousness of his movements. A couple of the officers put their hands onto their guns at that point, natural reaction sensing an imminent threat. Disturbed by this, but still trying to remain calm, the medic asked the man, how he was feeling. The man smiled and said in Spanish, God himself will not recognize you when I'm done with you. At that point, the officers and medics made a unanimous agreement to take the man into custody quickly. But as they were discussing the situation, the man stood up, stood up, breathed heavily. From the scratch marks on his body, it was clear he'd been clawing at himself, and his chest was covered in bloody foam from his mouth. Smiling again, he looked at the rosary the officer had hanging around his chest. That trinket won't save you, he said as he rushed towards them. Despite it being just one man against six other people, they had a major fight on their hands. The first officer, the man got to tackled him to the ground. As the others jumped into a pile on top and st to stop him through sheer weight alone. The man fought wildly, scratching and punching and struggling like a cornered animal, screaming at all of them. Eventually, they managed to subdue him enough for one of the medics to prepare a syringe to sedate him. As the medic was doing this, the lead officer, who was holding the man's arms over his head, made eye contact with the man. The officer began crying out in horror and released his arms, recoiling away from the man like he was something truly disturbing. In response, the man stopped struggling and gave a deep belly laugh that made everyone in the room shiver and said to the offer, Look closely so you don't forget. The medic managed to get the syringe ready and sedated the man enough for the others to get him onto a back stretcher and strap him down before taking him out to the ambulance. The officer who made eye contact with the man was white as a sheet and refused to ride in the ambulance, opting to follow in a patrol car behind. Another officer rode in the ambulance with the medics, and as he tells it, he never took his hand off his gun the entire journey. And they, when they got to the hospital, the officer who made eye contact went to the chapel to pray. Later, when one of his fe fellow officers asked him about what he saw, he said, his eyes weren't human. I don't know what I saw. 
or I know what I saw. I've never seen anyone with eyes like that. It was like looking into the eyes of the devil. This one's called the gray man. Normally, paranormal activity can be creepy and occasionally terrifying, but it doesn't result in active harm being done to people. Even poltergeists tend to move things when people aren't home. However, that was not the case in Santa Monica, California in the mid-80s after a series of reports of strange sightings and incidents in the countryside. Many residents reported seeing a tall man standing outside their homes. A couple of these homes had been broken into recently. These incidents came to a head when a homeowner called the police one night frantic and terrified, telling the operator there was a seven-foot gray-haired man outside his door trying to get in. The call came from a man known for being a bit of a drunk, so he wasn't taken too seriously at first. But the officer dispatched a patrol car as required. The operator stayed on the line with the caller trying to find out more information. The man got increasingly scared and claiming that the, the gray man was watching him through the windows and wanted to hurt him. Concerned, the operator asked the caller to describe the man, but all the caller was to say was the man was tall and thin with a large head and huge black eyes. Thinking the caller might be in danger, the operator instructed the caller to lock himself in the room until the officers arrived. As the officer was giving the instruction, there was a loud buzzing sound noise over the line that increasingly grew louder and louder before the caller screamed and the call was cut off. The operator immediately sent word to the officers en route to expect violence on scene. The officers, a male and a female, arrived a short while later and inspected the house. It was an old wooden two-story with a whitewashed exterior, which was peeling due to UV exposure and a dried-out yard out front. There was no one outside the house, nor any signs of someone hanging out. As they approached the house, they could hear the caller screaming horribly from just inside the door. They shouted towards the door, explaining they were the police and were coming in, only to find the door completely jammed when they attempted to open it. In their report, they stated the door was not closed by a lock, but more like it was being held shut by something on the other side. Suddenly, a loud buzzing started in the house, growing louder and louder while the man's screaming increased to an ear-splitting tone. Realizing they had to get inside the house one way or another, the officers decided they had to break in. They both took turns kicking the door, but were rebounded off as if it were reinforced, even though it was just wood. Eventually, they managed to break the door down, which halted the buzzing and screaming. They stepped in, but found the man wasn't on the other side of the door. What they found instead was blood splashed on the floors and the walls, and strange-looking bloody footprints. Drawing their guns, the officers entered the house carefully, checking each corner and room. Upstairs, they heard something moving about and someone trying to yell, but someone or something muffling the person's mouth. They carefully headed upstairs, guns held at the ready for any attack. Upon reaching the landing, they found more bloody footprints as well as a blood trail from someone being dragged leading into a room, which behind the door they could hear the muffled voice. The officer opened the door to find the homeowner tied up and gagged, covered in urine, and eyes bulging in terror. The officer's report stated the man was covered in cuts as if attacked by a razor, except done with specific purpose. The cuts surrounded his eyes and followed the lines of his organs and vitals, as though whoever cut him wanted to set up areas apart.
The man appeared nearly insane with fear, babbling and barely making any sense. When they ungagged and untied him, he broke down sobbing, thanking them for saving his life. He claimed the gray man wanted to take him away. Investigators later said the caller was in the room for at least four hours. Nevertheless, there was no sign of forced entry. Fingerprints or any other signs someone ever being in the house. The only thing they found were the strange footprints in the blood that couldn't be identified. The man's attack also said he called the police five hours before they showed up and was informed by the operator that patrol was on the way. The officers reported it only took 30 minutes for them to reach the house from the previous destination and about 10 minutes to find the man once they arrived. Somehow the officers lost over four hours from arrival to discovery. The man attacked committed suicide a few years later, leaving a note behind describing how they wouldn't leave him alone, and he warned the officers who found him that they were after them too, but also thanking them for rescuing him. The officers have since reported feeling like they are being watched occasionally, especially at night. Ooh. This one is called Woman in Chains. This story takes place over 10 years ago. On a freezing night in the city, with thick frost on the ground and snow threatened, this usually meant a quiet patrol night because, whether a criminal or not, no one wanted to be out in the cold. At around 3 a.m., the dispatcher controller got a call from a frantic man who was barely able to talk from fright. Upon being asked what the problem was, he responded by screaming his sister was possessed and had tried to cut his heart out while he slept. He said he managed to fight her off, then run to the bathroom and locked himself in, terrified of her. The dispatcher immediately sent police to his address and put the officers through to the man so they could better ascertain the situation. The lead officer was no-nonsense type who didn't have any times for hoax calls, so he got to business, trying to find out what was going on. Uh, there's a demon in my sister's body, the man whispered on the phone, quiet as though he was trying not to be overheard. I'm sorry, sir. A what? Asked the officer, not sure he had heard him correctly. A demon that's been battling me for days. It got free of the chains. He was saying this. The officer could hear a kind of scratching and banging at the door. In his report afterwards, the officer said what he heard next sent shivers through him. He overheard another voice taunting the caller in another language, though the door as she banged continually on it. He described it as low and guttural, like swallowing razor blades, but so deep he could hear it rattling things in the caller's bathroom. The voice was saying things that made the officer feel dread, even though he didn't know what was being said. The officer stayed on the line with the caller as he and the fellow officers arrived and quickly broke down the door to the house. Inside, they were met with something that would later give them nightmares. At the bathroom door was a young woman. Thin and gaunt, and when her brother had said she'd broken out of her chains, he wasn't lying. There was a thick chain attached to a bloody handcuff on one of her wrists that yanked every time she moved. Her body was covered in awful scratches that looked like self-inflicted, and one of her eyes had popped a blood vessel in her fits of rage, turning the eye socket an angry red. Her clothes were torn, and she was so pale the officer described her as looking like a corpse. The door dented and scratched like a wild animal had attacked it, and great gouges where her fingernails had dug in as she tried to get to her brother. Upon seeing the officers, she gave a horrible scream and tried to attack them. 
Despite there being four brawny male officers there, they had a fight on their hands. The woman scratched and bit ferociously, struggling against them and shrieking loudly all the while. Eventually, they managed to subdue her and get her taken away to a psych ward, where she apparently remains to this day. The brother, when they managed to convince him to come out of the bathroom, showed the damage she had done to him. His chest was a mass of scratches and blood, as his sister had tried to dig his heart out right from his chest with her bare hands. Many of the officers involved in this incident reported finding their own religion after it. All right. I think that does it for tonight's spooky episode. Um, <laughs> good luck if you're listening to this alone at night. <laughs> it was a particularly spooky one full of demons and spirits. <sighs> Makes you question your religion a little bit. <laughs> if something like that happened to me, I would. All right. I think the next couple episodes I'm going to do might be on voodoo. I might do a voodoo episode coming up. But I digress. Um, Don't forget to share the page with your spooky friends. Have them follow us on Facebook at Paranormal Stories. Spooky shiz is in parentheses. That is also where you can share your personal stories and also submit them to me anonymously if you do not want to post them publicly. Um, Yeah. So without further ado, uh, we will close this episode, and don't forget to sage your houses. <laughs> Stay spooky, my friends. Bye-bye.